0: He's writing, this is what it says, I solemnly charge you before God in Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead, and because of his appearing in his kingdom, because of this, watch what he says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. The context of that is, if you dig into the languaging of it and what Paul was writing to Timothy, in season and out of season, you'd be like, like, is that like a winter, fall type of thing? He was actually saying, preach the word when it's popular and not popular, Does that sound like a moment we're living in? Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience in teaching. For the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. They will turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths. But as for you, exercise self-control in everything, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time for my departure is close. And then this is one of my favorite uh, moments in the the Bible where Paul speaks to Timothy. He says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Today, as we begin our new series, Defense Against the Dark Arts, I want to speak to you from the subject, The Sound of a Serpent. The Sound of a Serpent, as we deal with the issue of cultural deception and the doubt that comes with it and the enemy's desire to confuse and destroy our faith. Will you pray with me just one more time today? Jesus, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. It's living, it's active, it's powerful. God, we have come here today not to hear from Jason, but to hear from you. So God, move me out of the way right now. Anything that would block your voice, God, would you just move it all aside so that we could hear your word for us today. God, teach us, guide us, challenge us, change us in this moment. We worship you and we honor you with the reading of your words today. In Jesus' mighty name, come on in everybody, shout in. amen. Amen. Uh, we, we lived in Phoenix for uh, six plus years, more towards the seven mark, and I love the desert. Anybody else just love the desert? Any desert dwellers? That's why here in Utah, you're like, absolutely not. This is nonsense. No. How many of you love the mountains? Do you love cold air? you love the snow coming? Where are my skeeters? Yeah, okay. So um, I, I enjoyed my time in the desert mainly because you can golf year round. Um, and uh, it happens to be something I really enjoy. But uh, I'll never forget being introduced to a rattlesnake for the first time. And subsequently, over the years of living there, I would experience rattlesnakes over and over and over again, especially as I would golf, because I have a tendency to not hit the ball straight. Um, it, goes, it goes other directions, right? It goes left and right. And so I'll never forget, though, one of the first times that I was introduced to a rattlesnake was when I was golfing, and I hit an errant shot, and I decided that I was going to wander into the desert to go find my ball which uh, a lot of golfers in Phoenix, especially when you play more remote courses that are outside from the city, they'd say, if you hit it way out in the desert, don't go after it. Like, there's there's no reason to go after it because you're gonna be introduced to something that you don't wanna be introduced to. And I was like, you're a liar. So... I remember going after my ball one, one afternoon as I was golfing and I'm walking out there and you know the sound of the desert like when you're out there and the wind's blowing across it and, and it just has this distinct, um, it has this distinct uh, feel and vibe. It has this distinct sound about it and that was one of the things that I really, really enjoyed about Phoenix. It's just this whole other feel. So I'm wandering out there and I can hear my feet crunching on the sand and the rocks and I'm trying, I'm trying to avoid Choya and I'm trying to make like, like look for my ball all at the same time. And I had my club in my hand because somebody once told me like you could see a snake, right? Or a scorpion. So I've got my club in my hand and I'm wondering, and I just want you if you can just take a moment to... To kind of put yourself in my shoes and the wind is kind of like shooting across my face and I can hear it through the uh, through some of the cactus and, and shrubs and you can hear the sand moving across the, the top and, and all of a sudden out of nowhere there's a sound that pierces all of that and sends shivers down your spine. And as I'm walking and I'm listening and I'm, I'm going looking for my ball, all of a sudden I hear a hiss and a rattle. And it was in that moment, I thought to myself, I'm going to be with Jesus. (laughs) It is one of the scariest noises you could possibly hear. And I'm pretty sure we can come up with like another one, like a grizzly bear going at you, pretty scary. But there's something, come on, how many of you know, there's something about the hiss of a snake. There's something different about the hiss and the rattle of a snake. Because you know like, oh, this is not a harmless snake we're talking about here. And it was in that moment that I just, I, I felt all the feels and, and, and fear rushed through me. And some of you are like, if I even thought there was a snake in my general area, I would lose my mind. Where are my people fear, afraid of snakes, right? But it was, it, was even, it was even more dark in that moment. The rattle and, and the hiss of it, it, pierced everything. The sound of that snake was bone chilling. And there's nothing like walking through the desert with the wind blowing across the sand and the dirt and hearing the rattle and the hiss of that snake to come piercing through it all. It's the sound of a serpent. And for correction on the on the scripture, it's two Timothy chapter four verses one through seven. Some of you were looking for it. There was a typo in my notes. It's the sound of a serpent. Now we may not be walking through the desert and bumping into a rattlesnake. But we are walking through the desert of this cultural moment, and there's very much the sound of a serpent. It was a sound that was no different than what a young Timothy and Titus were facing as they were tasked with the leadership of their respective churches. And this is not a new sound. It's a sound that can honestly be be dated back to the beginning of it all in Genesis chapter three, verse 17, or verses one through to seven. And here's what I want us to grab a hold of today as we read this This piece of scripture. If you're wondering what the sound of a serpent is, we're about to hear it. Watch what it says. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say? Did God really say that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Did God really say? Did God really say? This is the sound of a serpent. It is a sound that has echoed through time and is currently wreaking havoc on this generation. The fancy pop term, which is not really new at all, is the term deconstruction. This is a term that can be applied to all kinds of areas, but for the sake of our message today, I'm dealing with it in reference to our faith. It sounds like this, I'm deconstructing my faith, or better put, did God really say? Did God really say? Now, little backdrop, deconstruction, while it has its literary genesis in the 60s, it really has its origination in creation. The main goal of deconstruction is this. To destroy, this is from a literary standpoint, so I want you to listen to this, and then we're going we're to put it together. To destroy the assumption that a text has meaning. That's the literary definition. This is according to the New Fontana Dictionary of Modern Thought. The author goes on to say this, that there is no one guaranteeing the meaning which inhabits a text which constitutes its presence. The link between text and meaning is cut. Authorial, listen to what they put, authorial intention dissolves. Listen to that language. Authorial intention dissolves, meaning that when we read something or we hear something and we bring it to the truth of God's word, meaning that there is no truth, only my truth. When I start deconstructing his word, I'm taking away authorial intention. Did God really say? Can we do some hard work in church today? And this is what's, this is what's happening is that for many of us, we're struggling because we look at this amongst many other literary accomplishments, But this is not like any other literary accomplishment. This is the word of God. This is his truth and what he said he meant. Paul's charge to both Timothy and Titus was to guard truth, preach truth, adhere to truth, corporately as a church and individually as a Christ follower. And it was a truth that was not proofed in the manifestation of feelings or desires. It is a truth that is and has been set forth by the authorial and authoritative person and presence of that truth. His name is Jesus. And Paul's clear about this as he writes to Timothy. 1 Timothy 6, 20 through 21, listen to what he says. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding irreverent and empty speech and contradictions from what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some people have departed from the faith. In 1 Timothy as well, chapter 1, verses 12 through 17, Paul is going to talk about why we need to guard this thing, because it's a life-changing word. So listen to what he says about himself. He says, I give thanks to Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, appointing me to the ministry, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an arrogant man. But I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance and unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed along with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. But I receive mercy for this reason, so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever. Amen. Woo! Sorry, I get excited when I read this. This is why we're doing this this journey together. There is amazing stuff in here. And then he goes on to say, in verse 18, he says, Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies previously made about you so that by recalling them, you may fight the good fight. Having faith and a good conscience, and then watch what he says, which some have rejected and have shipwrecked their faith. And then he doubles down. He says, among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've delivered to Satan so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. That's ruthless some of us, our minds are gonna be blown as we read some of these scriptures, you're gonna be like, I didn't know the Bible said that. The deconstruction or annihilation of God's truth produces shipwrecked lives and faith. Writer Thomas Merton puts it like this, he says, We must know the truth, we must love the truth we know, and we must act according to the measure of our love. Truth is God himself, who cannot be known apart from love, and cannot be loved apart from surrender to his will. So this series is about truth. Sorry, that's just my introduction. (laughs) to get us into this, into this series. But this series is about truth, living in truth and guarding that truth. It's a truth that is defined by and distributed by the word of God. So, did God really say? <laughs> Welcome to defense against the dark arts. I think one of the first things that the enemy employs in this dark arts, if you will, is to get all of us to ask the question, did God really say? Did God really say? We're going to discover that he said a lot of things, but today what I want to do is I want to work through three realities that this question, did God really say, what it works to undermine in our lives. Does that work with everybody today? You all with me? All right. Three realities did God really say works to undermine. Here's the first one, is it works to undermine divine purpose and intention? Did God really say works to undermine divine purpose and in intention? Now, the serpent was the most cunning. Every shot cunning? Amen. Some translations, if you're reading from it, says crafty. Of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made, he said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Did God say don't? Listen to Proverbs chapter 16, verse 25. It says this, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. So often we fall prey to the idea that God does not have the best purpose and intentions for us as his creation and ultimately as his children. The interesting thing is that we measure this according to what the world offers us. We look at things like fame and position and power and sex and popularity, acceptance and money, and come to the conclusion that these things are better than what God ultimately has for us. The reason? Because he tempers and builds boundaries around these things. Many of us cannot fathom a God who says don't as much as a parent who says don't. How many of you would agree with me right now that I'm a good parent if I put boundaries on my kid's life? Come on, show of hands. How many of you would agree with me on that, right? Like if if justice came running to you and be like, hey, you gotta check my dad out. He's awesome. He said I can do whatever I want. How many of you would be like, I'm calling CPS? Right? Because as a father, as as a mother, as parents, instituting certain things like don't or can't is healthy for my kids, right, yeah. right? And it's interesting that for some of us, we can rationalize that. For others of us, depending on where we've come from, the backdrop of life, we cannot fathom the idea that somebody would say, nope, don't do that. Right. Can't, can't do that. You, you shouldn't do that. It's not, it's not healthy for you. You know what I'm talking about. So for God to say it, a lot of us have come to believe that the only measure of his love is the allowance of whatever we want. We've talked about this before, but that's not love. That's not love. As the serpent asked, did God really say? He's working to usurp the ultimate good that God had for Adam and Eve in the garden. And it's no different for you and I in the garden of life that we are living in right now. What is interesting to notice is, is that the effects of this interaction with the serpent ultimately led to sin and shame. The truth is that on the backside of did God really say, there will always be shame. This is what took place between Jesus and Peter, this famous interaction in Matthew 16, verse 21 through 23. So from then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests and scribes, be killed and raised on the third day. Peter took him aside I love this. Could you imagine Peter's like guts to do this? Hey Jesus, I need to talk to you for a second. We need to have a word. (laughs) I've been noticing some things, Jesus, that I'm concerned about. One of those things is this whole idea about you dying and going and leaving us alone. And watch what he says. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. <laughs> oh Peter. Exactly. Peter, Peter, Peter. He said, "Oh no, Lord, this will never happen to you." And Jesus turned and told Peter, "Get behind me, Satan." How many of you have ever had a good friend just say, "Get behind me, Satan?" No no one, right? No one's ever said that to us. These guys who were friends are walking together. This is the loving Jesus that we all want to look at, right? He says, get behind me, Satan. And then watch what he says. You are a hindrance to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. See, we always, we stop at the get behind me, Satan, but like look how forceful Jesus is with him. See, Jesus was always more concerned about God's purpose and intention rather than than the world's or man's purpose and intention. And these two always stand at odds with each other. As we try to pursue the things of the world, we're drawn away from the things of God. There's a way that seems right to man, but it always leads to destruction. And that journey starts with, did God really say? It's the sound Of a serpent. So, the first thing that this question did God really say, the first sound, it works to undermine divine purpose and intention. Can I just say to us today that there is a divine purpose and intention for your life? Come on, from the front to the back, there is a divine purpose and intention for your life. Some of you got tricked into coming to church today. You saw the artwork and you're like, oh, that looks cool. They're going to be talking about Harry Potter. I'm in. Welcome to church. But I need you to know that there is divine intention and purpose for your life. Did God really say, yes, he really said, And the reason that he said it, whatever he said, the reason that he said it is because he's got a purpose for your life. He's got a plan for your life. He's got a reason for you to exist in such a time as this. And it's not to follow all the ways that feel good. And it's not to follow all the things that the serpent's going to whisper. It's a divine direction. It's a divine purpose. It's a reality that when we step into it, bursts something new in us. Did God really... Number two, here's the second thing that this question works to undermine, is it works to undermine divine authority and command. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat? Now if you, if you go backwards, you're gonna notice that God says, don't do this, I command you. At one point or another, we all have to come to the place Where we submit to or deny God's authority and power. We've been working up to this series for about three months now. Slow drip. of getting there and we're talking all the goodness of God and we then we we, we get out of a series like this out of heaven and church I just need you to know as your pastor today I'm going to say like as your pastor over the next few weeks I'm going to say some really challenging things and one of those is a very clear and clarion call to this true truth right here, that at some point or another, we are either going to deny or, or come to the conclusion that God is who he says he is, right. that his word is true, and that there is authority and power in it. Yeah. Yeah. Did God really say works to undermine divine authority and command? He's either in charge or he's not. He's either Lord or he's He's not. And this is what, did God really say works to undermine in our life? Listen to what Paul writes to the Ephesians concerning the authority and power of God. And remember, these are the people that Timothy would, would be shepherding and working with at one point or another. The issue of God's authority and power is always brought into question by Satan. He will always poke at his authority. How many of you agree with me right now in this generation, authority is a really difficult thing for us? We struggle with authority. That's because we're all rebels at heart. Or by design. <laughs> or by dysfunction. But authority's difficult for us. Don't tell me what to do. Uh uh-uh. uh. We look at authority with, a, with an eye that's critical. Don't we? And I get it. Authority, in the name of authority, some really bad things have been done. For sure. Abuses and and terror and and hurt and pain. But can I just, just say this? Just because one authority was bad doesn't mean that another one is. No one wants to say amen to that because you're not convinced of it. Just because one set of parents was bad doesn't mean that another one is. Just because your parents hurt you doesn't mean that every parent around is bad. So when scripture talks about needing fathers and mothers, we deny that, you see what I'm talking about? And we start to deny all these things because authority is an issue for us. Ephesians 1, through 23, he exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead. This is God's authority. And seating him at the right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is the body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way." One more, John 17, one through five. Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you since you gave him authority over all people so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. This is eternal life that that they may know you, the only true God and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. I have glorified you in the earth by completing the work you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world existed are y'all tracking with me today that's, that's Christ's authority and, he, and he's pro- we're proofing it through scripture I grew up in Seattle any, any northwest people in the house today okay four of you perfect I grew up in, in Seattle and loving this altruistic and utopian idea of living as a rebel Right? Listen to all the bands Stone Temple Pilots and Pearl Jam, Nirvana, Alice in Chains, Rage Against the Machine, Soundgarden. Thanks, baby. <laughs> she was more of a rebel than I was. I wore khakis, she wore flannel. It was crazy. <laughs> But in the 1990s and early 2000s in Seattle, there was this vibe, like this, like just rebellious vibe, right? And and and, and, and we were all like many of us were lured into it that. We're living in that time, and, and and I became a rebel, albeit a rebel without a cause. This is what I've come to realize: that a rebel without a cause is simply a person wandering. See, the the direction of rebellion is always to try to break something. This was the appeal of the serpent, to undermine God's authority and command. And he would do this by usurping God's words with linguistic theft. Watch what he says. Let's just go back. We're gonna be in Genesis a lot. So here's Genesis 2, 15 through to 17. Can we do some work in the Bible today? Lots of scripture. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And then the Lord God commanded the man. How many of you would agree with me? Command's a really strong word. He commanded him, you are free to eat from any tree. Listen, like you gotta memorize this language. Listen to it. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for the day that you eat from it, you will certainly die. Genesis three, now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, watch the language. Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Sneaky, sneaky snake. <laughs> Twist the language. God said you can eat from any tree in the garden, but don't eat from that one. The serpent says, did God really say that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Notice that how the serpent removes the previous included word, command as well as he works to remove the nuance and the liberty that is found in the original command, which is the freedom to eat from anything in the garden minus one. So with all of his authority, with all of his command, God gives through love and liberty says, look it, I've created a party for you. I've got so much for you. These are the boundary lines. Eat from any of these trees, but don't eat from This one. And the serpent confuses the original statement to add a layer of negativity to the original command in order to conjure doubt and to twist God's loving structure into a harsh dictatorship. The serpent works to show God's call for restraint to be tyrannical and unjust. Remember that the Bible describes the serpent as crafty. And he employs linguistic theft in order to produce a technicality that produces death. The truth is is that we have a generation shipwrecking their faith on the altar of technicalities. Someone once said that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. I actually think the road to hell is paved with technicalities. Oh, don't get quiet on me, church. <laughs> well, technically, technically, well, technically, did God really say? It's not a new tactic. It's not a new reality. Are you all with me this morning? <laughs> Is it early in church today? 15 minutes and everybody's like. Watch this. This is, this is crazy. I'm really just like taking us down into like an adventure where we get to like look at all these moments that we don't typically see in scripture. Watch Matthew 21, 23 through 28. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and said, by what? They're talking to Jesus. By what authority... Are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? I love this. It's so fun. Jesus answered them, I will also ask you one question. And if you answer it for me, then I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus was savage. (laughs) Verse 25, did John's baptism come from heaven or was it of human origin? Now watch what happens. They discussed it among themselves. If we say from heaven... He will say to us, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, we're afraid of the crowd because everyone considers John to be a prophet. So they answer Jesus, we don't know. (laughs) And then he says, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. They're having a conversation to which they're assessing this reality. If I acknowledge Jesus to be who he is, then I need to start taking responsibility for that statement. But I'm afraid of the crowd. I'm afraid of what my friends are going to think. I'm afraid of what my family is going to think. I'm afraid of what it's going to look like on Facebook. I'm afraid that I can't start posting things on Instagram without getting critique. Come on, somebody. I'm afraid of this right here. So I'm vacillating between these two realities right here. I don't know. And I live in ambiguity, living life based on certain technicalities, wanting Jesus to give me everything that is in his heart and his mind for me, but not assessing him as king. The serpent works to undermine and distract from this truth so that he can enact his plan for our lives, which is to pull us from the goodness and purposes of God. Did God really say? Number three, here's the last one. Did God really say it works to undermine, listen to this, divine character and position? So we go through all that. We may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden, but the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. Verse four, no, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The serpent works to make God look like a childish, insecure, and threatened dictator rather than a loving, benevolent, and kingly Lord. He appeals to our desire to know everything and have everything and be everything. And to do this, he must engage in the defamation of the name, character, and position of God. This would be the reality that Timothy and Titus would be charged to deal with in their respective cities and contexts. It's the same thing that we're tasked with as a pastoral team to defend against the dark arts. And if you want to know what the dark arts is today, it starts like this. Did God really say? Many of us are living in accordance with the question, did God really say? Without looking at the very thing that he said. So we look for God in all of these places and we deny the thing that he gave us in order to see him. Titus chapter two, verse one says this. This is what Paul's encouraging Titus to do. He says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. The truth is God really did say. Church, The heart of this pastor is to get us to know what God said. And over this series, we're gonna work to offend the head so that we can expose what's in our hearts. And I know for some of us right now, we're already challenged because we're like, where are we going with this series? What's he gonna say? I'm gonna say a lot. We're gonna teach a lot. And in subsequent videos that we're gonna do, we're gonna do some of these offshoots of some of the subject matter that's in Timothy. These are rich, rich letters. But out the gate today, I'm concerned that in this generation right now, we are living off the premise of did God really say? And we're trying to deconstruct his word through the lens of the world. And I just need us to understand that that's not how it works. We do not try to deconstruct this in light of the very thing that denies him, but rather we come with openness to the scriptures. We come with openness to his word. And because God said, then I look at my life and I realize that my life then has to be transformed by this word. And then I wander out into the world knowing that my feet are on a firm foundation. Did God really say, yes, he did. And he said it because he loves you. And he said it because he cares for you. And he said it because he is a good father. And he said it because he wants to be in communion with you. And he wants you and I to rely on him and be placed in his loving hands and arms. Why? Because he's a good dad. Many of us have had really bad earthly parents. But just because the experience was awful doesn't mean that he is. I never thought I would have these words come out of my mouth as a parent. Because the premise of my parenting was I will never say what my parents said. Why, Dad? Because I love you. Why can't I do that? Because I love you. Sure, I could work through the technicality of why he's not ready to do A, B, C, and D. Technicalities. How many of you know when something is authored by technicality, you can find a loophole? Son, because I love you. His word to you and I is because he loves us. In Jesus' name. If every head bowed and every eye closed in this moment. No one looking around. Maybe today, the outset of this series, some of us need to make the decision. We say, whoa, 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 wait a second. I haven't heard it like this before. I haven't put it, I haven't, I haven't been put like that before. If you don't hear anything else today, I need you to hear that God does love you and the reason that He authors things the way that He does is because He loves you. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, what I wanna do today is I wanna just give us the opportunity to say yes to this Jesus. Many of us in this room today have already done that and we're processing through and walking out our journey with fear and trembling. But some of us in here today have yet to say yes to Jesus. So with every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around, I wanna give us the opportunity to say yes to him. I wanna invite everybody just to repeat this after me. With everything that we are, if that's you making that decision today, come on everybody, say Jesus. I'm giving you everything. I'm giving you my past. I'm giving you my right now. And I'm putting my future in your hands. Save me, change me, make me new. And I declare in this moment that I'm gonna follow you all the days of my life. I'm sorry for doing it my way. And today, I'm deciding to following your ways in Jesus' name. With every head bowed and every eye closed, no one looking around. If you prayed that prayer for the first time today, come on, would you just shoot your hand up right now? I just wanna know that you're with us today. I wanna be able to pray for you. Is there anybody in here today that wants to make that decision? Okay. No one in here today? Let's lift our head and open our eyes. I wanna encourage us. In these moments, as we move into this series,